These are the Greek Myth Files, a close look into the Greek mythical story world, its gods, its heroes, and its monsters others. Each episode features a story or broader topic that we dig into, analyze, and try to explain in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the Classics Program at the University of New Hampshire and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to another episode of the Greek Myth Files. Right now, we're in the middle of Season 3, which takes as its theme the Black Sea and features a series of myths about peoples and places the Greek heroes meet and visit in the distant eastern edges of the world. Today is our first installment of a series of episodes about the voyage of the famed ship, the Argo, and the heroes who make the first long-distance sea voyage to a mysterious land called Colchis. As in past episodes, we provide some visual aids on our website, maps, a genealogical chart, and some original art to help you think about the mythical adventures of the Argonauts, which means the sailors on the Argo. Just go to mantomyth.org backslash gmf and follow along with the map as we go from Greece to the far reaches of the earth. But to tell the story of the Argonauts, we have to go back further still in time to explain the origin story of the legendary Golden Fleece, the object of the Argonauts' quest. It's a fascinating story, one of intrigue, deception, and supernatural events. So sit back and relax and take in another episode of the Greek Myth Files. In a distant land, far away from Greece, there stood a grove, an ancient grove, dedicated to Ares, the god of war. In that grove hung a magical item, a golden fleece, the shaggy hide of a golden ram that had once saved the lives of two young Greeks. Guarded by a serpent that never sleeps, the golden fleece shone in that grove, radiant and glorious, a thing of great beauty and a treasure beyond measure. Lord Jason held up the great fleece in his arms, the shimmering wool threw a fiery glow on his fair cheeks and brow, and he rejoiced in it. Glad as a girl who catches on her silken gown the lovely light of the full moon as it climbs the sky and peeks into her attic room. The ramskin, with its golden covering, was as large as the hide of a yearling heifer, or a brocket, as a young stag is called by hunting folk. The long flocks weighed it down, and the very ground before him as he walked was bright with gold. When he slung it on his left shoulder, as he did at times, it still reached his feet. But now he made a bundle of it in his arms. Mortally afraid he was that some god or man might rob him along the way. This excerpt is taken from the earliest full version of the myth that we have, a short epic poem by the poet known as Apollonius of Rhodes, called the Argonautica, or the Argonaut Adventure. Although Homer mentions the voyage of what he calls the famous Argo, he says nothing else about it, even though it seems clear that the story belonged to the oral mythical tradition in the earliest periods. Apollonius's epic, in four books, is the only full Greek account of this fabulous story about the first long-range voyage into the distant unknown a tale of adventure, exotic locations, and fantastic events, all to retrieve the magical talisman of the Golden Fleece. But what exactly is the origin of the Golden Fleece? Where did it come from? 
As it happens, even though the Golden Fleece sits far away in the distant land of the Colchians, we have to start in Greece, in a town called Orchomenos. Now, you won't hear a lot about Orchomenos in history books, because it was eclipsed in importance by its neighbor Thebes early on. But in the prehistorical, or so-called Mycenaean period, Orchomenos seems to have been a pretty powerful town, and so there are some stories about it from the mythical period, perhaps a glimpse of its former glory. And it is here in Orchomenos that the story of the Golden Fleece begins. The king of the land was Athamas, who was the son of the famously fertile Greek figure Aeolus. Aeolus himself was said to be the son of Helene, whose name, which translates to something like Mr. Greek, indicates his importance as a sort of first man. And in turn, Helene was the son of the mythical figure who survived the Great Flood, Deucalion. What all this means is that Athamas, king of Orchomenos, was a mythical figure connected genealogically to other very important figures in northern Greece. And we've also provided a genealogical chart on our website. Anyways, Athamas seems to have had some trouble in his marriages, which is actually a pretty big understatement, as we will soon see. At the time of our story, he was married to a woman named Aino and had two sons by her. The story of those sons is fascinating in itself, but we're going to have to leave them nameless here because the focus is on the two children that Athamas had by a woman or goddess named Nephili before Aino. With Nephili, Athamas had a son named Phrixus and a daughter named Heli. But it's unclear what the circumstances were, whether it was a sort of short-term relationship or if they were considered husband and wife. The traditions vary. After Athamas got married or remarried to Aino, the four children lived together. But as you might imagine, Aino wanted the best for her own two sons by Athamas and so resented the presence of his other two children by another woman. And of course, Phrixus the male could pose a threat to Aino's sons inheriting the kingdom. This motif of a stepmother's cruelty can be seen in many places in Greek myth and other storytelling traditions. You can just think of Cinderella. And so, you've probably already figured out by now, Aino decides to get rid of Phrixus and Heli. And she does so in an elaborate plot, in a sort of James Bond being slowly dipped into a pool of man-eating sharks kind of way. But we'll save that for after the break. The plot that Aino hatches is a remarkably deep game involving agriculture, bribery, and a big lie that leads to a dramatic rescue. The most straightforward version is found in Apollodorus' library, which listeners will remember is the most complete overview of myth that we have from antiquity. Eno plotted against the children of Nephili and persuaded the women to parch the seed for the wheat crop. The women got hold of it without their husbands knowing about it and did just that. The earth, because it was planted with parched wheat seed, did not yield its annual crop. Because of this, Athamas sent ambassadors to Delphi to ask how to end the famine. But Eno convinced the men to report back to Athamas that it was prophesied that the crop failure would end if Phrixus were sacrificed to Zeus. When Athamas heard this, he brought Phrixus to the altar, but only after being forced by the inhabitants of his country to do so. It's a remarkable ploy. Aino convinces the women of the town to steal the seed that was being saved for the following year's crops, toast them so they cannot sprout, and then return the seed to their containers. Some months later, when the men sow the seed as usual, but crops fail universally throughout the land, the natural conclusion was that the gods were angry. Someone, or something, was poisoning the land to make it barren. As usual, when there is a major problem but no obvious answer, one has to go seek the answer from the gods, 
and so the crop failure prompted Athamas to send an envoy to the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi. Ino, the evil stepmother, intercepts them and bribes them into ditching the trip to Delphi altogether to hang out away from the town for a couple of days and then come back and give a false report. If you want to make the crops grow, you'll have to sacrifice your son Phrixus, else you'll die of starvation. Ino was betting on the threat of hunger to enact her plot against Phrixus. Now, despite paternal instincts to save his son, Athamas is driven to go through with the grisly plot by his fellow townspeople, who are obviously taken in by Ino's plan, and so Athamas leads his son to the altar. It is certainly an intricate plan, probably inspired by the fact that Ino has no direct way of doing the job herself. We are not told of the motivation of the other townswomen who help Ino toast the wheat seed into uselessness, but at the same time, they are unthinkingly putting themselves and their families at risk of not having enough food on the table to survive. In modern America and other thriving economies, most people are removed from food production. But in the smaller orbit of Greek city-states in antiquity, the loss of a yearly crop would have been devastating. And there is little recourse if such difficulties persist for a number of years. The ploy works, of course, and King Athamas has to act. And naturally, he sends some of his men to Delphi, the location of the famous Oracle of Apollo to seek a way out of the mess. According to the logic of the story, Ino must have been expecting this move, for only at this point is she able to unleash her final coup, bribing the envoys to report that Athamas must sacrifice his son by his first wife to bring an end to the famine and the suffering. Now, if you're Athamas, you obviously don't want to kill your son, but he's being pressured both by the gods' will, or at least what he thinks the gods want, and by his own subjects, who desperately want to find a way to end the famine even if it means bloodshed. Now, it's important to state here that human sacrifice was not a regular practice of the Greeks. And to my mind, it probably wasn't practiced ever at all. And if it was, it was probably only in times of extreme desperation. I'd urge listeners to be wary of news from archaeological reports that prove definitively that the Greeks regularly conducted human sacrifice. And while we have a fairly large number of myths that narrate human sacrifice, in nearly every account it is judged to be a particularly barbaric act. When Agamemnon, for example, is poised to sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia to Artemis to get the winds blow so that he can lead the Greeks against Troy, he is horrified, but he goes through with it only because he has no choice, or at least he thinks he goes through with it, because Artemis substitutes a deer for her at the last minute. In our story, Athamas is horrified that he would have to consider killing his son Phrixus. But here, for the greater good, he, like Agamemnon, seems willing to entertain the idea and has a little help from his subjects. So he brings Phrixus to the altar and is prepared to do the deed when, well, let's save that for after the break. The scene could not have been more dramatic. Athamas stands at the altar, his son decorated as a sacrificial animal, with ribbons on his head, about to be killed in the interest of the community. Onlookers gazed at the poor boy, presumably torn between the horror of bloodshed and hope of deliverance through that bloodshed. Just before the moment that the blade was to come down and end Phrixus's life, Nephili arrives on the scene, swoops up her children, and puts them on a magical ram with a shimmering golden fleece that she got from Hermes. Soon they're off, to the surprise of all the onlookers, before anyone can catch their breath or comprehend what has happened. Phrixus and Heli are saved, and Athamas is off the hook, prevented from committing an unwitting atrocity through the machinations of his wife, Aino. 
The story given just now is actually just one of several versions as to why a golden-fleeced ram came and took Phrixus and Helle away from Orchomenos. And in fact, in some accounts, the fleece was not golden, but described as being a dark reddish and purple hue. In another version, Phrixus's sin was to be falsely accused of trying to seduce his uncle's wife, and that's why Athamas was trying to kill him. While in still another account, Phrixus and Helle are punished by Dionysus with madness until they are rescued by their mother, who put them on the ram to be taken away. In terms of our story, the motivation for the appearance of the golden ram is not important. The main point is that a magical ram spirits Phrixus and Helle away, far away, first across the land and then across the sea, the wide Aegean Sea. For this ram was no ordinary ram, but a fine swimmer too. For a long time, Phrixus and Helle were ferried on the back of the beast. But as time went on, Helle's grip tired. Just as they were exiting the Aegean Sea and entering the strait that led to the Black Sea, Helle could not hang on any longer. She slipped off and drowned. Helle's death was a tragedy, but it also became quite famous. It was so famous that, in a later epic poem on the Argonaut adventure, the famous mythical minstrel Orpheus was said to have sung it to the Argonauts on the eve of their voyage a voyage that would literally take them along the footsteps of that golden ram all those years ago. Orpheus sang how Phrixus stood at that unholy altar, his head wreathed with ribbons, how he fled veiled in cloud. He sang of how the golden ram bore the lad into the pitying waves, how Helle sat grasping the horns. Seven times had the goddess Dawn fulfilled her course, and seven nights had the moon completed its own in heaven, when the sister Helle, whose name shall live on forever, forsakes Phrixus, saved, alas, in vain from her cruel stepmother. With weary hands she stretches, reaching for the ram's wet fleece, but her garments, heavy now with drenching water, drag her down, and her hands slip off the smooth gold. What grief was yours, Phrixus, when propelled on by the whirling tide, you looked back, only to see the face of the hapless maid as she called to you. Her hands extended, her hair spread out upon the waters. This passage comes from a Latin epic modeled on Apollonius's epic composed by Valerius Flaccus in the first century CE, likewise called the Argonaut Adventure. Having Orpheus sing this song as entertainment before launching the ship is a very clever way to introduce the backstory of the Golden Fleece as a flashback, and as a reminder of how dangerous the sea can be as the Argonauts contemplate what they are about to face. But it's not Phrixus who is the focus of Orpheus's song, but rather Phrixus's sister, Helle. And even in death, her name, we learn, was to live on forever. And it's true. For the narrow channel of water where Helle fell off the ram was thereafter called the Hellespont, the Greek for the Sea of Helle. And even today, many call that body of water by that name. Of course, the Argonauts, too, will have to sail through the Hellespont on their way to retrieve the Golden Fleece, a bleak reminder of the death that followed in the wake of Aino's plot. Phrixus, however, held onto the ram tightly until it reached its final destination, the land of the Colchians and the distant lands to the east of the Black Sea. 
an exotic place full of marvels. Here he was received by the king, Aetes, who was said to be the son of Helios, the sun god, as well as brother of the famous witch Circe and the tragic Pasiphae, both of whom have important roles in other myths. Aetes welcomed Phrixus, offering him a home in his land, and he even gave his elder daughter, Chalciope, the lady of the bronze eyes, to Phrixus as wife, with whom he'll have four sons. In honor of his salvation, Phrixus sacrificed the ram to Zeus Fuxios, that is, to Zeus in his aspect as helper of escape and protector of refugees. Our word fugitive is related to the Greek word Fuxios. As for the golden fleece itself, Phrixus gave it to King Aetes, who then, depending on the version, either put it in his palace or set it up in the grove of Ares, the war god, nailed to a tree as a talisman of great value and perhaps as a protector of his own realm. And it is this fleece, shimmering in a distant land, that the Greek hero Jason was sent in quest of, a long and treacherous voyage far from home. But that is the topic for our next episodes. Before we end this episode, however, I'd like to shift focus and think about a topic that we really haven't delved into so far. That topic is the relationship of Greek myth to the mythical traditions and other cultures in what is called the Near East. These cultures often have their own rich mythical traditions. At one point, it was thought that Greek culture was somehow unique, perhaps even blessed with a particular genius that other cultures could never hope to match. You might even think about the implications of the term Near East itself. What is near about it and east of what? East of Greece, that is, marking out the dominant position that the Greeks have had in cultural history since antiquity even to the present day. And yet archaeologists, linguists, and historians have uncovered and studied a remarkably vibrant set of cultures that are technically east of Greece, and we've learned to read their languages, for instance, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, and the Hittites, to name but a few. Many of the Greek stories have parallels with myths told in these other cultures. But here's the rub. These cultures predate the Greek stories we have by centuries, if not millennia. And recent research has emphasized that Greece was not isolated, but was linked to other cultures and probably borrowed a lot from them, including some of the stories we talk about in this podcast. So to name these cultures Near Eastern is problematic because it privileges the Greek tradition over these others. We could just as easily focus on the Babylonians and talk about how the Near Western Greeks borrowed motifs and stories from them. But because Greece and Rome became so important in the European mentality from the Renaissance to the period of colonization, we tend to think about the world from the perspective of Greece and Rome. That's why the Orient, the land of the rising sun, refers to Asia, and the Occident, the land of the setting sun, refers to us in the West. It's all very and problematically Eurocentric. Okay, so why all of that? Well, in the case of Greek myth, there are some really neat parallels that we find in the myths of some of these Near Eastern cultures. And since the Golden Fleece episode takes us into the East, we might expect that the Greek myth may have drawn on some stories told there. And as it happens, we find some suggestive parallels with myth and religious practices of the Hittites. Now, who were the Hittites? Well, we're lucky at the University of New Hampshire to have a practicing Hittitologist. Say that four times fast. Now, I'm hoping to strong arm him into an interview for our podcast to help us learn about the myths of these fascinating ancient people. For the time being, though, we can say this. The Hittites were a cultural group that spoke a language related to Greek and Latin and resided in modern-day Turkey. In fact, Hittite is the oldest attested Indo-European language and is super important in helping us understand the history of languages like Greek. But it was only about 100 years ago that we started being able to read the language, and we've made a lot of progress in understanding it and deciphering the text. Anyways, 
one of the things that we've learned is that there was a story involving a sheep's fleece that was part of a story about a god named Telepinu. Telepinu was a god of agriculture who was once made so angry that he left in such a hurry that he didn't even have time to make sure he put the right shoe on the right foot. But when he left, the land turned barren and animals became infertile. The other gods eventually brought him back into the fold. But the main point here is that Telepinu is the guarantor of abundance and fertility. And in one myth related to cult, Telepinu is associated with an item in Hittite called a kurshash. Scholars have been trying to sort out exactly what a kurshash is, but it is clearly a pelt of an animal, whether a cow, sheep, or goat, fashioned to a sort of bag that seems to be used in hunting. But it was also an object of religious importance in and of itself, one that in some celebrations was said to contain all good things in it. Telepinu took account of the king. Before Telepinu, there stands an ayan tree. From the ayan tree is suspended a hunting bag made from the skin of a sheep. In the bag lies sheep fat. In it lies symbols of animal fecundity and of wine. In it lie symbols of cattle and sheep. In it lie longevity and progeny. In it lies the gentle message of the lamb. In it lies the right shank. In it lie plenty, abundance, and satiety. Even though we don't completely understand every bit of this text, and we've smoothed over the translation, leaving out gaps in the text, what is clear is that the kurshash symbolized abundance and prosperity. In other places, it is described as being shaggy, so a fleece and not a hide. And it is sometimes said to hang from a tree, just as in the Greek myth. And in one Hittite text, the kurshash was said to have been placed in the temple of Zababa, who is, like Ares, a god of war. Based on these parallels and resonances, since 1975, when the idea was first put forward, many have seen the kurshas lying behind the myth of the Golden Fleece as an item of great importance. On this reading, this is why acquiring the fleece was so vital, why Jason and his men chose to make the dangerous voyage, and why Aetes was so reluctant to part with it. One other possible connection. At the Hittite religious festival called the Peruli Festival, there was a ritual telling of the myth where a storm god defeats a giant serpent named Ilyanka, which ended in the renewal of prosperity and destroying the old Kershash while presenting a new one. Some comparativists point to the fact that a never-sleeping serpent guards the golden fleece. Now, while on the surface there are some similarities, on close inspection the connections are not particularly close and one obviously notes that the Golden Fleece is not a bag and is not directly relinked to prosperity in any explicit way in the Greek myth. Some of the connections are, in fact, not really connections at all. As for the hanging of the fleece and kurshas from a tree, I'd point out that there are versions where the Golden Fleece either resides inside Aiti's house or simply lies on a rock in the middle of a grove. And as for the serpent connection, the Ilyanka myth has little in common with Jason's dispatching of the serpent, and in later versions, he doesn't do the dispatching himself at all, and looks a lot more like the cosmic battle between the Greek storm god Zeus against another serpentine monster, Typhaeus, a myth that we'll just have to save for later. So it may be that the kurshash in Hittite culture was the inspiration for the golden fleece in Greek myth, but it's really impossible to see how it prompted specifically the Greek myth in all of its details, which often vary. So at this point, we'll have to leave the comparison right there, as a suggestive set of possibilities, but since we can't recover the process of transmission, as often, we'll have to simply regard the Hittite myth as a possible influence on the Greek mythical story world, 
which the Greeks then took and ran with. For those of you who want to get a good sense of the myths preserved in the Hittite language, I encourage you to get a book called, cleverly, Hittite Myths by Harry Hoffner Jr., coming in at just over 10 bucks on Amazon.com. Not only does it have a cool cover with the writing system of the Hittites, called cuneiform, or wedge writing, it also has an up-to-date translation of the wide body of myths preserved in Hittite. But be warned, because Hittite texts were preserved on clay tablets, many of them are broken and are now fragmentary, occasionally leaving something to be desired. But it's still miraculous that so much has survived. In our next episode, we'll start on the Argonaut adventure proper, with a discussion of the famous man with one sandal. If you want to get a head start on the Argonaut adventure, you can start reading Apollonius of Rhodes' Argonautica, or Argonaut Adventure. You can buy a translation, or you can simply read a slightly older one on theoi.com. That website, theoi.com, has a lot of good texts organized by myth, but it also has some longer texts like the Argonautica that are now in the public domain. Some are a bit stuffy, but they're free, and that ain't bad. Well, that's it for another episode of the Greek Myth Files. As always, great thanks go to our voice actors, A.J. O'Neill and Julia Summer, as well as our sound engineer, Samantha Kutsia. Also, our show tile was illustrated by our student artist, Alina Podgorski. And you can see more visuals on our website, mantomyth.org, including a map that you can use to follow our story. Our theme music is graciously provided by Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. And I encourage you to go by and listen to his music. This has been the Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. See you next time. <laughs>